in Jacksonville, Florida, the construction firm Stormforce of Jacksonville, LLC, was engaged in residential housing construction. Its roofing contractor, Florida Roof Experts, had a crew up on a roof to replace a customer's roof. It was a low-sloped roof and about 13 and a half feet off the ground. After receiving an anonymous complaint, an OSHA compliance officer visited the site. To him, it appeared that none of the roofing workers were using any form of fall protection. And while the allegation of a violation against Florida roofing is interesting in itself, today we are going to discuss OSHA's citation against the general contractor, Stormforce, for work performed by the subcontractor, Florida Roofing. Today is April 20th, 2022. I'm Manish Rath, and you're listening to the OSHA 3030. Welcome, everyone, to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman LLP, right here in Washington, D.C. I represent employers in the field of occupational safety and health law, and I've been practicing for perhaps more than 26 years. And I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson, one of our members of our occupational safety and health law practice group here at Keller and Heckman. Taylor, Thank you for joining us today on the OSHA 3030. Thanks for having me, Manish. Well, I think we've got a great topic, and I think we should probably go ahead and get into it. Right, Manish. And this is an interesting case because there are a few nuances that we can discuss. First, we'll go through the factual background of our case today, which is Secretary of Labor versus Stormforce. We will discuss what it means to be a controlling employer and how OSHA must prove actual knowledge to make its case that an employer is in fact controlling. And an important concept in today's case is an employer's duty to exercise reasonable care. So we'll discuss the Review Commission's evaluation of that term and the role that it played in the outcome of the case. And as always, we will end today's podcast with practical action items for the employer community. And remember, this is a live presentation, and it's being recorded so that we can republish it as a podcast and as well post the slides and the presentation as well on YouTube. So after we're done today, and just for the participants in our live webinar today, we will turn off all the recordings and go into a section we call off the record, just participants in the live webinar. We send out an email earlier in the week and invite people to pre-submit questions. In the past, some of these questions have been terrific, and they can ask about any area of occupational safety and health law that they like. So that's a great opportunity to get into a more informal chat about occupational safety and health law. Okay, well, why don't we talk about this case? This case is Stormforce of Jacksonville, LLC. Nolan Hauser is a compliance officer for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. He works in OSHA's Jacksonville area office. I've been there. It's located in a suburban office park east of downtown Jacksonville. Mr. Hauser received an assignment based on an anonymous complaint alleging hazardous working conditions at a residential housing site. He visited the construction site, and the general contractor for that site was Stormforce of Jacksonville LLC. They were hired by the homeowner to replace a 13 and a half foot high uh, low sloped residential roof. But Stormforce is the general contractor and it subcontracts for all of its projects, any tasks that require specific labor. 
Here, it delegated the assignment to Florida roofing experts. When Mr. Hauser arrived at the project site, he observed five of Florida um, roofing experts employees working on the roof. And to his observation, uh, they were working without the use of any fall protection. The employees left the work site and Mr. Hauser identified Florida roofing experts from the permit posted at the work site. David Nosel was Stormforce's site foreman. Mr. Nosel had visited the site that very morning as part of his rounds. And he had reviewed the site and he took photographs for his own records as he did on a daily basis. David Nosel came and went at that job site and went on to another job site before Mr. Hauser, the compliance safety and health officer, had arrived at the, at the work site. By the time Mr. Hauser had arrived on the site, only Florida Roofing's employees were present. And Mr. Hauser tried to reach a supervisor at Florida Roofing, but could not reach anyone. So looking around, he noticed a dumpster on the job site that displayed Stormforce's business name and contact information. And this is actually how Stormforce originally became affiliated with the worksite. Mr. Hauser then interviewed Stormforce's site foreman, David Nosel, and Mr. Nosel stated that he could not recollect whether or not the employees at Florida Roofing Experts were using fall protection while on the roof. So the compliance officer asked a simple question, when was the last time you were there? This morning. Were they using fall protection then? I don't recollect. Yeah, but even though the foreman stated that he had no recollection on the subject, nevertheless, based on his personal observations and the foreman's photographs from the morning of OSHA's inspection and preceding day, Mr. Hauser recommended a citation alleging a serious violation of the fall protection standard. Uh, the citation was based on his conclusion that Stormforce was the controlling employer due to its overall oversight of the job. Right. Taylor, on the basis that OSHA believed that, the, that Stormforce was the controlling employer, OSHA issued a citation. Stormforce timely issued a notice of contest and contested the citation. The case went before an administrative law judge. I recollect that OSHA sits within the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, but the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission is an independent agency, and it has a, the trial level administrative law judges. And so this case went before an administrative law judge or ALJ, and the judge affirmed OSHA's citation and assessed a penalty amount, $10,200. Stormforce appealed to the administrative law judge's decision all the way up to the review commission itself. The review commission is comprised of three commissioners. They are uh, political appointees or nominees. And at the time this case went to the review commission, it, it's exceptional because the commission had all three commission positions filled. And so this case was one of the last cases to be uh, it, where a decision was issued by a commission comprised of all three commissioners. Uh, we'll hopefully get into that same arrangement soon. But for now, this was one of the, the most recent, and it was about a year ago. So Manish, one of the key uh, legal concepts that we wanted to just provide an overview of before we got into um, you know, what the commission decided was the multi-employer worksite doctrine. And under the multi-employer worksite doctrine, an employer could theoretically be held liable for an alleged OSA violation, even um, if the alleged violation was committed uh, by a worker employed by a different company. 
under the under the multi-employer worksite doctrine, there are four different types um, of employers who could be subject uh, to this kind of liability. A creating employer, uh, which is the employer who is alleged to have created a hazard. A controlling employer, an employer who has control over the worksite. An exposing employer, the employer who directs activity that will lead, ex uh, lead to exposure to a hazard. And a correcting employer. Now, this is an employer who has the power and ability to correct a hazard. That's right. So this multi-employer worksite doctrine, it, it shows up in a lot of different work areas, but nowhere more integrally than in the construction sector. And that's what we have here, a general contractor and a subcontractor. And OSHA therefore applied its own multi-employer worksite doctrine and said, as to Stormforce, yeah, maybe you didn't have any employees at the site, but you are a controlling employer and therefore nevertheless subject to compliance requirements under the act. Manish, the burden of proof rests with OSHA to prove all four um, of the following elements to win its case. First, the secretary must prove that the cited standard applies. Uh, second, that the employer violated a standard. Third, that employees had access to the violative condition. And fourth, that an employer had knowledge of the violative situation. Those four elements are critical, and OSHA has, to, has the burden to prove them in every single case where it cites a violation allegation under a uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration standard. And Taylor, you'll recollect, you and I uh, picked a case where that was the central issue in the March 2022, last month's uh, episode of the OSHA 3030. So this is an incredibly important point for employers to bear in mind, and I encourage you, if you missed last month's OSHA 3030, go to our website. Uh, all of our prior episodes are housed uh, there at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And look for the March 2022 episode where those four elements are discussed in full. So the, the agency has the burden to establish all four elements. But as a preliminary question, the Review Commission noted that the case first turns on whether Stormforce is a controlling employer, which is what you just discussed, Taylor. Uh, and only after finding that Stormforce is a controlling employer and thus subject to the multi-employer worksite doctrine, the review commission held, could a judge then evaluate whether or not Stormforce or its foreman at the site had actual knowledge of the viol alleged violations? And Manish, you know, finally, the review commission evaluated whether Stormforce exercised reasonable care to prevent or detect the violative conditions. Okay, so that's the pathway that the review commission stated that an administrative law judge has to follow. First, asking whether or not an employer fits the multi-employer worksite doctrine, then asking whether or not the the uh, four elements are established, then finally whether the employer had actual knowledge and whether they exercised reasonable care if they're a controlling employer. Manish, with respect to a controlling employer, uh, when you have multiple employers present at a work site, now this case addresses the question of how OSHA should determine exactly which employer is in fact controlling. Yeah, and it's a great question. A controlling employer must be one who exercises, uh, if, if it's determined that what we're looking at is a controlling employer under the multi-work site doctrine, then, then there would be a duty for the controlling employer to exercise reasonable care to prevent uh, and detect uh, violations. A controlling employer is not held to the requirements to have the same level of specialized expertise as, say, for example, a subcontractor. That's why a general contractor would engage a subcontractor who is specialized in a specific trade or skill. 
but the agency will hold the controlling employer to a standard that they exercise reasonably diligent efforts to monitor and identify hazards and to direct subcontractors to correct for any hazards that they may note. One of the ways that control over a worksite is established is through the contract between the general contractor and the subcontractor. And in this case, Stormforce argued that the master subcontractor agreement specifically said that Stormforce, quote, does not retain supervisory control of such joint use areas for the purposes of liability for unsafe conditions. Uh, and that Stormforce would not be able to ensure uh, Florida Roofing's adherence to safety standards and the, um, and the Occupational and Safety Health Act because Stormforce cannot reasonably be expected to prevent, detect, or abate violative conditions by reason of its limited role in the project. And that same contract goes on to say that in the event that Stormforce does observe unsafe conduct um, by a Florida Roofing employee, Stormforce's sole remedy shall be to contact Florida Roofing's management personnel and identify the breach of contract. And it's clear from this contract, Monish, that Stormforce certainly thought that it had contracted away its duties as a controlling employer. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. Uh, the wording of the contract didn't really help Stormforce, though. When the Review Commission looked at it, they they noted that there were contractual clauses. For example, there was an exhibit to the contract called Subcontractor Expectations, uh, which was attached to the contract. And that document enumerated the various work conduct and practices, requirements, or expectations that Stormforce held Florida Roofing to. And so... Uh, because Florida Roofing was contractually uh, bound to meet those expectations, the Review Commission believed that that was evidence of a sufficient degree of control contractually by Stormforce upon Florida Roofing to establish that Stormforce could qualify as a controlling employer under the multi-employer worksite doctrine. And additionally, the commission found that Stormforce's work and safety practices, uh, particularly those required of the site foreman, demonstrated an extensive degree of control over the work site. Uh, the foremen are responsible for leading uh, crew huddles, completing safety inspections, and recognizing when employees are engaged in work that could result in death or serious injuries. Uh, all of these factors, when considered together, led the commission to conclude that Stormforce was indeed the controlling employer in this case. Yeah, it's a good point, Taylor. So now you have two elements, the contract and the review commission found that the attachments to the contract, the exhibit, uh, contractually imposed a lot of control over Florida roofing. And then what you're saying is that practically speaking in day-to-day -day practice, there were these safety huddles and there were monitoring inspections, et cetera, that evidenced actual exercise of control by Stormforce. Uh, and so, so the review commission came to the conclusion that we're looking at a controlling employer under the multi-worksite doctrine. So where does that leave us? The review commission found that, uh, that we have a, a a controlling employer or an employer who's subject to the requirements of the standard. Now, I think the next step is to determine whether or not there's actual knowledge on the part of Stormforce. OSHA attempted to argue that there was actual knowledge because even though the site foreman, David Nosel, said he didn't recollect whether or not when he visited that morning, the roofing employees of Florida Roofing were engaged in the use of fall protection. Uh, he had supplied at at the direction of the compliance officer of these photographs that he had taken earlier that morning. And OSHA attempted to use those photos uh, from the site taken by the foreman, Taylor. 
right? And in the photos, all five of the Florida roofing employees who were on the roof that day engaging in roofing work uh, were not wearing a personal fall arrest system. Uh, there was no guardrail and no netting visible, uh, but it would have been impossible to say just from the photos that one of the five employees uh, could be serving as a safety monitor. So the safety monitor is an alternative. The use of a safety monitor is an alternative practice to the kinds of things that you just described, Taylor, the personal fall arrest system uh, or guardrails or netting, et cetera. And so the commission found that in when they looked at the photos in all but one of them, they would have expected five employees, as noted by the compliance officer, who were working on the site. And in all but one of the photos, fewer than five employees were on the roof leaving the theoretical possibility that one of the employees missing from the photo may have been acting at that time of the photo as a safety monitor. There was one photo where all five employees were in the frame, so to speak, but in that photo, one employee wasn't performing any work. And therefore, it was possible that the photo was depicting that non-working employee in his capacity as a safety monitor. It would have been impossible, the review commission said, to confirm or to refute that a safety monitor system was evidenced in the photos supplied by OSHA to the Review Commission, to the LJ. And Manish, since the secretary failed to prove that Stormforce had actual knowledge, the next question that the Review Commission had to answer was whether or not Stormforce exercised reasonable care in its oversight, in its role as a controlling employer. Uh, as you can see, three factors are taken into consideration when evaluating if an employer met its duty of reasonable care. Well, the first one is whether or not the number and the frequency of the inspections uh, that, that the Review Commission noted can vary from project to project based on the scale, the complexity, or the place of work, uh, and, and uh, the kind of hazards that are encountered as the work project progresses and how much the controlling employer knows about the safety history and safety practices of the subcontractor that it, it allegedly has control over. So Manish, would it be reasonable then for there to be more frequent inspections at the beginning of a project? Or, or if the controlling employer knows, for example, that the other employer, the subcontra uh, subcontractor has a history of non-compliance? It's a great question. If a general contractor engages a subcontractor that has a known history of violations or even uh, violations that are noted only by the general contractor's inspection process, then the employer, I think, would do well to demonstrate that on that basis, it engaged in monitoring on an increased frequency and with a greater depth of uh, diligence than an employer who it believed had a long track record without any such notable issues. Reasonable care can also be established if the employer implemented an effective system for promptly correcting hazards. And reasonable care can be demonstrated by an employer if the employer can show that it enforced its safety and health requirements. It has a documented record that when noting deficiencies, it directed the employer to correct them. Modest, with respect to reasonable care in this case, Stormforce argued that its monitoring and inspection procedures satisfied the company's duties as a controlling employer. They did, Taylor, and OSHA acknowledged that the procedures by Stormforce were adequate and that their monitoring, their inspections, their routine was, was uh, an appropriate 
measure to take. And I think that's important because Stormforce uh, was alleged to be aware of Florida Roofing's history of prior OSHA alleged violations. And as, as you discussed, Taylor, that can trigger the need for more frequent inspections. But what OSHA was arguing was that the site foreman, David Nosel, should have noticed when he came on that morning that Florida Roofing's crew had failed to use fault protection. And he should have subsequently taken measures to control for that by directing at an employer-to-employer level a cessation or an abatement of, of the practice. And that OSHA alleged this would have been a part of Stormforce's duty of reasonable care. And to support this argument, OSHA pointed to the fact that the hazardous conditions were open and obvious, you know, that the foreman was required to visit the work site multiple times and photograph the work in progress, and that some of the work occurred you know, shortly before um, CSHO Hauser arrived on the scene that day. And Taylor, again, the Review Commission rejected OSHA's argument. Uh, the, the ALJ had, had uh, agreed with OSHA that, that this constituted a violation, but the Review Commission reversed that. And as we discussed, none of the foreman's photos depicted an open and obvious violation dispositively. There were exp- theoretical explanations for the photograph, uh, photographs that would suggest the possibility that there was conceivably a compliant alternative measure. And so the use of a, a monitor, safety monitor. And so, so whether or not uh, at the time of OSHA's inspection, uh, the uh, compliance officer was able to present evidence using photographs from earlier that morning was the issue that, that the Review Commission visited. And they believed that the photos from the morning uh, did not have, bear any uh, dispositive evidence on the question of compliance. And what the compliance officer observed at the time, since they weren't performing work and they got down from the roof immediately, didn't indicate the uh, presence of a violation either. So they came to the conclusion that uh, the photographs submitted by the compliance officer were not necessarily irrelevant, but, but not dispositive evidence of an alleged violation. And Manish, ultimately, the Review Commission held that OSHA must establish evidence of Stormforce's knowledge at the time that it conducted a site review. If conditions changed after Stormforce's foreman left, that would not assist OSHA in establishing Stormforce's knowledge. And at the time that the Stormforce foreman, David Nossel, visited the site, there was insufficient evidence uh, through his testimonial recollection or through his photographs of a violation. So this is interesting. Uh, the bottom line is the Review Commission found a, against Stormforce on the question of whether they were a controlling employer. This, the Review Commission said that they were, but they found in favor of Stormforce and said, nevertheless, it appeared that Stormforce engaged in activity of reasonable diligence through its daily monitoring and checking in and making sure everything was compliant. And as to the actual knowledge question, the photos don't say whether or not Stormforce had actual knowledge. Whatever the compliance officer observed later that day is not probative of whether Stormforce knew about it at the time. And so Stormforce's knowledge is that missing ingredient at the time of the inspection, and Stormforce's diligence is the ingredient that Stormforce was able to sufficiently supply through its daily inspections. And the photographs that were taken during those uh, did not yield evidence of a violation per se. 
interesting final results for the, for the review commission's decision. That review commission was comprised of uh, Commissioner Atwood, Commissioner Lehau, and uh, Commissioner Sullivan. Uh, Commissioner Sullivan and Commissioner Lehau both have been guests here on the OSHA 3030. If you have fascinating interviews uh, going back over the past two years. And so if you haven't heard those interviews here on this show, go back to our, our library of prior episodes and check them out. Let's talk about what employers should do in light of the storm force decision. Well, I think the first thing to say, Taylor, is that, uh, that it goes to the question of reasonable care. Right. It's it certainly in looking at storm force in this case, um, like one of the takeaways is that it's certainly difficult for employers to contract away their duty to exercise reasonable care while still, on the other hand, maintaining quality control. Yeah, that's a fair point. And, and I think that uh, when contracting, and there's always this tension to try and make sure that you set up what your expectations are for a subcontractor. And in doing so, you're going to, in many cases, give away your defense that you're not a controlling employer. There may be no way around that while maintaining your, your quality control objectives. The second takeaway from this case is Stormforce did a great job of engaging in frequent monitoring, and they took photographs on their site visits. And so I think that that, that takeaway should be a lesson learned for anyone participating in today's OSHA 3030, the need for a general contractor to engage in frequent monitoring of subcontractors to record their observations in a chart, a walkthrough chart, photographs, et cetera, is critical. The other thing I'd say is that element of how to perform work uh, safely that requires highly specialized knowledge should be contracted away, either to a third-party monitor or to that subcontractor. In this particular case, it's notable that Florida Roofing didn't have what appears to be a supervisor, a site supervisor, a foreman. There were five employees, none of whom were described as being at the level of David Nosel from Stormforce. Manish, a third takeaway here is if you're a controlling employer, um, you know, a practical sort of best practice is that it's always best to implement corrections uh, between employers uh, from the employer to employer level and, and thus avoid managing uh, the subcontractor's employees directly. There's a lot of good reasons to make sure you adhere to that rule, Taylor. That's a really good one. Uh, wage hour laws, other employment laws, areas that I, I also engage in on behalf of employers are good reasons to let your subcontractor manage their employees. And if you notice a violation, that's not going to uh, be likely to result in imminent serious harm or death, then notify the subcontractor and tell them, tell your employees to cease in that substandard practice, condition, or work method, uh, and let the subcontractor deal with their employees accordingly. The last thing I think I can say is a fair takeaway or lesson learned from, from the Stormforce case is that it's important that, there, that when, when an employer engages in provisional safety measures, in this case, the monitor, which was an alternative method for compliance with fall protection, that that be memorialized in a written plan as a best practice. It's interesting to note that a lot of employers try and use the idea of a monitor as a defense in fall protection alleged violations, but you have to read that section carefully. It requires a pre-submitted, particularized, job site-specific written plan before an employer is permitted to use that alternative measure. Merely saying we had a monitor so that's why we didn't 
comply with the other alternative requirements like file arrest, personal file arrest systems is not likely to be a sufficient defense in that particular case. And I think it would apply to all provisional or alternative safety measures. It is wise for the employer to memorialize aforehand in a written work plan that is particularized to that job task, what the method is going to be that assures the same or greater level of safety. Well, Taylor, uh, you let me have the last word this time, didn't you? Thank you. Uh, that's, that's this month's OSHA 3030, as many of you know, and as I've said before, the OSHA 3030 is a program where we've been covering OSHA law developments in 30 minutes every 30 days for over eight years, and all of our prior episodes are on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Feel free to check them out. Many of those episodes are as relevant and informative today as they were when they were first uh, broadcast. A full recording of this episode will be posted on YouTube as well as on podcast. And we are now connected to your favorite podcast app, several different channels, Google Podcasts, Apple's podcast app, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, even iHeartRadio. So check them out. And if you um, want, and I think it may, may make sense if you're not catching every one of these as a live event, subscribe to the podcast. And if you do listen to the podcast, please remember to like or rate it so that it's more searchable by others. And remember to link into all of our OSHA attorneys and our practice group if you haven't done so already. We, we want to expand the LinkedIn network of the OSHA 3030 community. We'll send out an invitation to our next episode, which is set for May 25 at 1 p.m. Eastern. And when you get that invitation, please remember to send it on to at least three other people, either within your organization or at other organizations, especially safety and health professionals and in-house counsel, folks in your office of general counsel who are responsible for compliance with uh, EHS. Uh, and and that by doing so will ensure the, the success of the future of the OSHA 3030. So thank you for that. Uh, remember our sister programs, the TOSCA 3030 and REACH 3030 are coming up on May 11th and June 8th at 1.30 p.m., 1 and 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, respectively. And uh, we have a FIFRA 3030 for those companies who engage in activities that are uh, subject to the FIFRA regulatory scheme. If you have any questions about this or any other OSHA law question, please feel free to shoot us a call or email anytime. Taylor, I know I can speak on your behalf. We all love OSHA law and we love chatting about this stuff. So if it's a simple black letter law question uh, that we can answer off the top of our heads, we love chatting about this stuff. That's it for today's OSHA 3030. Taylor Johnson, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, today and thank everyone at Keller and Heckman who made this episode possible. And thank you all members of the OSHA 3030 community for being a part of today's program. I'm Manish Rath. This is the OSHA 3030. And until we see you again next month, stay safe.